Welcome back to How to Tickle Yourself. I'm your host, Duff McDonald, along with my co-host, Joey of Rockledge. Hello. We've got another first for you this week. It's not Taylor Swift, but he's going to be able to tell us about Taylor Swift. Specifically, tickets to Taylor Swift. Josh Barron is not a Taylor Swift expert, but he is a ticketing industry expert. And maybe he can tell us what the hell just happened during Taylor Mania this summer. Josh is currently VP of Business Development for Project Admission, where he works with content owners to facilitate a more connected and integrated ticketing experience for fans and rights holders working across professional sports and live entertainment. Previously, he helped lead business development at Songkick, working closely with artists and management teams on direct-to-fan ticketing. He is also the co-author of Ticket Masters, The Rise of the Concert Industry and How the Public Got Scalped, widely regarded as the definitive source on the history of the live entertainment business in North America. Before that, for more than a decade, Josh served as editor of Relics Magazine, the jam band Journalistic Bible. He currently works with another guest of this show, Peter Shapiro, running ticketing and data for Brooklyn Bowl, the Capitol Theater, and other Dayglow properties. And he is also the co-author and co-publisher of Eyes of the World, Grateful Dead Photography, 1965 to 1995. So Josh is a deadhead and a music fan who figured out a career writing books and running magazines about music and is currently trying to help make sure, or at least I hope he's trying to help make sure, that the cost of concert tickets does not have to break the bank. Welcome to the show, Josh. It's great to see you. Thanks for having me. At the present moment, traveling town to town, the mystery of the motion, right here, right now. Right here, right now. Whoa, right here, right now. So, you are a ticket industry expert. I have. I, am. I tried to. I was talking to my 14 year old this summer when she was thinking that the reason I didn't have Taylor Swift tickets was just that I didn't love her enough. And um, the only thing I can think about is Beatlemania, like the closest. And I don't, you know, I don't have a front seat to all this. In terms of ticketing, and when people ask you about what just happened here, can you describe Taylor Mania? And maybe Beyonce is the same thing, but Taylor seems to be in a universe all her own. Uh, you're, you're right. I, I don't think there is a previous analog to Taylor and not to pile on the superlatives and everything else, but it, Taylor is a bit of a paradigm shift um, or, or at scale of what we have experienced. There's just not an artist like her before. I, you know, I've thought about this question. I thought, well, what about Michael Jackson? You know, how close did he get to this? And while certainly Massive wasn't even at his height, 
I would probably argue wasn't at this scale, right? With this sort of cultural penetration um, across multiple mediums, right? We just saw Taylor Swift take over the movies. Um, <laughs> this way, seeing Martin Scorsese, um, you know, and, and, you know, all these other films and, you know, um, and, and, and sort of restructuring how that deal is done, right? There are now, there was news that broke this week that, and I haven't had a chance to read all that record labels are trying to stop artists from re-recording um, their music as she is to sort of, you know, mm-hmm. flip the middle finger to how she's lost control of, of her masters and, you know, the, the empowerment that her, her fans um, can have. Obviously, you know, Taylor Swift is also impacting NFL numbers and viewership, which is (laughs) crazy. Um, But, you know, it just goes to show that she, she is a force um, unto herself and that, you know, she is an artist that has arrived at this time of, of, of technology, of social connection, of these mediums by which she can connect to her fans. Um, and that technology also involves ticketing, right? And we're now in the age of digital ticketing. And when the three of us on this show currently grew up, you know, if you wanted to go to a concert, you slept outside of Tower Records or <laughs> wherever the ticket alley was overnight. And you said, you know, you knew where you were going to most likely get a ticket, right? If you like stay there long enough and you, you know, physically put yourself there, you would get it. And now that's not the case, right? And that you were you were battling, I shouldn't say battling, technology and, and ticketing and, and the internet were definitely, I don't know if the glass slippers were a metaphor, but they were a perfect marriage. But, you know, with that came the, the problem of, you know, everyone being able to try to access those, t- access those tickets at the same time. Um, and even with measures that companies like Ticketmaster and SeatGeek and Access have tried to implement, um, it's still incredibly hard, right? I mean, people were infuriated by what happened here domestically. There have continued to be problems with her sales abroad. And, you know, there were Senate hearings, well, the the technology and this, like, there's just, like, understand that no technology can, can, like, could handle what was sort of happening that, like, there, there was never going to be a good user experience. (laughs) And if there's, it's a no-win situation, right? And I think what's, so that's that's unfortunate, right? But there's also, you know, then questions around how do you measure fandom, right? How how do we measure your daughter's fandom, right? Should one fan, because they're a quote unquote bigger fan, how is that measured? Presumably, it shouldn't just be measured on how much money you've spent toward that artist, right? It should maybe be presumed in how long you've listened to that artist and how other ways you've supported that artist and other things you've done. But how do you quantify that in a way to then translate it to you get a ticket and where should you get a ticket within that specific venue so there's a lot to still be figured out um you know unfortunately the good news and the bad news about music is that it is a highly emotional experience right we have these emotional connections to artists and it creates a very visceral emotional response when we don't get tickets to set artists that we really really want to see (laughs) so bad okay so so you you brought up something there i hadn't really um thought of or heard of where you're talking about um, treating fan, like measuring fanhood is project admission. Is that, what do you guys do there? What is that? So project mission is a a platform that integrates with primary ticketing platforms um, to provide additional tools, features, and functionality that they don't offer. Um, And so we're really working on behalf of 
um, venues. Um, right now, it's major, it's professional sports teams across major leagues. Um, we do see a future where we could potentially also work with artists. But, you know, it depends on, you know, it's really at the discretion of what artists want to do. Um, you know, I think, you know, going back to my time at Songkick, Songkick was the world's largest um, artist ticketing platform, right? We, we, we handled pre-sales for Paul McCartney and Adele and Metallica and Wilco and Prince and all sorts of folks for all over the world. Um, the pitch there was, hey, we can give fans a better user experience because ultimately primary ticketing companies are good at a lot of things, but they're not good at customization. Um, we can make it potentially a little bit cheaper um, for your fans and we can help you collect data about your fans, which is, which is a big offering. And we can wrap the experience in your voice and in your look, right? Um, ultimately, there were, you know, while as many as those notable artists use the platform, there were a lot of artists that didn't use the platform because at the end of the day, like it takes work. It takes a lot of work to serve your fans and do all those things. Um, mm. And sometimes, you know, there's artist teams that have other priorities. And that's okay. Um, they don't want to, you know, ticket things in a different way. They just kind of want to go with what people already sort of know, despite its frustration, right? They don't want to sort of be the ones to change the model or put in the effort to like try and stop all the scalpers and, you know, make all their fans jump through hoops. Because it frankly can sometimes not be a great experience. Um, so, you know, um, but back to Project Mission, yeah, we, we provide additional tools and, and technology um, and help provide some of that customization um, and data that, um, you know, I think venues and sports teams are, are looking for and work in close partnership with, with the primary ticketing companies right now, really sort of as an extension of what they're doing for on behalf of their clients. So, so are, we, uh, are we not are not supposed to scalp tickets anymore? <laughs> you mentioned scalping. Is that like, is that the good? I have a, to, wait to, to add to that question. I've, I found it interesting that I can, it's getting harder. So we live upstate. Sometimes we buy, we're, we're optimistic. We buy our New York city tickets and then the day of comes and we're like, Oh, we can't do it. And it seems like it's getting harder and harder to, to relist a ticket that we legitimately bought um, for sale. Like it feels like it's the noose is getting tighter there. Like you can only sell it back through someone a lot of the time. Is that true? Uh, yes, correct ish. Right. I think in that last part, you you can resell it. It's just, it's, it's how you are able to resell that ticket. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, listen. I think um, part of that 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 the, the internet, right? As I was talking about earlier, has provided an opportunity for professional brokers to come in and create a, a business, right? I should mm -hmm. also note that there is a distinct separation between sort of what we call the secondary market and professional sports, and as it relates to music and Taylor and Olivia Rodrigo and beyond, all that sort of stuff. Sports has a, a fairly transparent relationship with the secondary community, right? The secondary community and certain companies there are taking large positions with professional sports teams um, that have become instrumental to helping a lot of these teams kind of survive year over year, right? They're buying thousands, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of tickets per game. So as a sports organization, that's a yeah. critical part of your PL, right? And that's why you then can go to various secondary markets and you can buy tickets and whatnot that's that's kind of how it works as it relates to music much different beast 
um, you know, should you be able to, re- I think people would generally say you should be able to resell your tickets if you want to. The question mm-hmm. becomes, well, should you be able to resell them for a value, right? More than you paid. Right. And there are different scenarios. What's interesting is that the, the secondary community has generally found alignment with what I'll call consumer advocacy groups. And generally, when we think of consumer advocacy groups, we think of they're protecting us to the consumers from um, uh, overpricing and, and, and things like that. They are also, with regard to ticketing, have taken a stance of you, it is, it is your ticket to resell and you should not be told how and when and where you can resell that ticket, right? It's yours. There is definitely some gray area. As you've seen legally, there are state-by-state mandates that have changed. Technically speaking, you do not own that ticket. It is a license, <laughs> and that license can be revoked. Okay. Um, much to the much to the chagrin of of brokers, you know, we certainly have plenty of clients that will find that brokers have bought up a certain amount of tickets, and will request that we, you know, they they cancel those transactions, and we have to refund their tickets because they don't want brokers getting a hold of them. That is the right of an artist, a venue, a promoter, sure. et cetera. Um, so, you know, in terms of, you know, I mean, here's this, here's the thing, right? I, Joey, I, I think people have gotten away from this idea of, of, of scalping, right? That's almost sort of an antiquated term <laughs> at this point. Right. And <laughs> that, that reselling tickets has become for better or for worse, very legitimized, right? That we always hearken back to the stereotypical Mike Damone from Fast Times at Ridgemont High, the broker right. in the trench coat. Yo, I got your Van Halen tickets. It's a little shady. I'm not sure. <laughs> Places like StubHub and SeatGeek and Vivid and TickPick have given buyers confidence that it's a safe place to buy tickets. They're going to get real tickets. They're not fake. And if for some reason they don't deliver your tickets, you're able to get your money back. Um, so, you know, that's a good thing. I think there's still, and, and, and they're, usability, their ease of use, right? These were also the first place to do what we call dynamic pricing, which you now see on the primary market, right? Much like airline tickets. Um, you know, I'm sure you know plenty of people and I hear it all the time, like, oh, I can't get tickets to this thing. I was on StubHub and I was like, well, did you look at Ticketmaster or did you go to where they originally being sold to access? And like, well, no. And I was like, well, maybe look there first before you go over here because again, Consumers have just been conditioned to go to StubHub, right? Because StubHub has done a lot of marketing, have, have, has partnered with Major League Baseball for many years. That's now a C-key client. But, you know, all these things that kind of pe- make people feel like, oh, this is where I go for my tickets um, because they always think tickets are sold out. I should also note to your audience, generally <laughs> speaking, most live events are not selling out. Most events wow. need your patronage to go. The... Taylor Swift's of the world are the outliers. That is not typical, right? Most arena shows are not selling out. Most theater shows are not selling out. Live events need your patronage and support. So I, I, I have know, a stub. I got a StubHub story for you. So <laughs> um, uh, I love uh, Pete Shapiro and you guys, what you guys do at the Capitol. I saw Bob Dylan there uh, when the Capitol reopened. I'm going yeah, there, there in early. Yeah. I was. I'm going there in early November. However, separate story. He does these Beacon uh, Thanksgiving shows, right? 
And I have bought on three separate occasions the same exact two seats, uh, front seat loge for Bob Dylan at Thanksgiving. Somehow going on StubHub, I got the same. My fit, it's like my seats. I go on there and the <laughs> StubHub's like, here's your seats. You're back for your seats. Three different years in a row. So I may know how to actually use StubHub better than other people do. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> interestingly, you are, when you go on secondary uh, sites, generally you are told the section and row number. You are not told the seat number until you purchase. I know. Um, that right? is to, ba- to basically <laughs> prevent those tickets from being canceled, right? So a promoter or artist, whoever can't go online, be like, oh, these are, these are being relisted. We don't want them relisted. We're going to cancel them. So they generally don't list seats. So you have somehow yeah. you know, the, the, the ticketing gods have looked it down upon you favorably, Duff. Let's talk journalism. Let's talk journalism. Uh, Relics Magazine. I was, uh, I'm a late... Um, Comer to this. In fact, the sure. internet brought it, brought relics to me. Um, okay. I, uh, there is no uh, music publication in the history of all the music publications that I've gotten where I look through the entire roster of the features. So they do like five features in their email on a daily basis. I'm all in. So whatever it is you helped build there, congratulations. <laughs> um, do you... You spent 10 years as editor and now you've, you've jumped the proverbial fence. You are, uh, uh, you've gone corporate on us. Tell, tell <laughs> us about your time at Relics Magazine. Um, and what, get, give us a story from that. I mean, it was the best, you know, I mean, I, I couldn't have, at, I, you know, all things lead back to the Grateful Dead, right? Ticketing. <laughs> And what, like the ethos of all that, they end up having a profound impact on ticketing. Um, on journalism, they end up having an impact on that. So, you know, it's funny. When I was in high school, I started reading music magazines, Rolling Stone, and I wanted to be a music journalist. Needless to say, um, you know, I got, I, I was uh, your stereotypical high school kid in AP classes, but getting into trouble, much of the chagrin of my parents. And I had this dream of being a music journalist. And they're like, oh, God like this kid listening to the Grateful Dead and like in trouble, like set your sights on something realistic. And so there, there's a story that my dad had written me this like very stern letter. He was, he was a principal and a, an administrator in the district. My mom was a high school English teacher. And that said like, basically like get your act together. Stop dreaming about this. You've got to be more pragmatic. Something along those lines. He never ended up giving it to me. Long story short, I went to UC Santa Barbara. I would, I spent my year abroad on island. I came back. I got an internship. My first internship was at Surfer Magazine. Um, after UC Santa Barbara, moved to New York, got an internship at Rolling Stone. And then about a year and a half later, I met some folks that Relics had just gotten under some new ownership. It was uh, just bought by a wealthy Wall Street deadhead named Steve Bernstein. Um, Pete Shapiro was an early investor in the magazine, was also an investor in jambands.com, which Relics came to own. Um, and I started writing for relics and then an opportunity opened to be like the shipping and handling guy, which was of like an office of like seven or eight. And I started there. And after about eight or 10 months, you know, they said, listen, you're not very good at shipping and handling, (laughs) but, but, but you're, you're, you're pretty good at writing and, and, and editing. So, um, 
we're, we're going to change what you do, um, which, you know, so we'll figure it out. So I then became associate editor and kind of worked my way up. But, um, you know, listen, being being able to run a music magazine like that, Relics was founded in 1974 as a way to connect Grateful Dead tape traders. Uh, um, okay. And, you know, was the, is the longest continuously running music magazine in this country behind Rolling Stone, right? It's really not as popular as well known, but it sort of stayed the course. So, um, when I got there, you know, the nice thing about Deadheads and the jam band scene, right? So this is post Garcia's death. Grateful Dead members doing different things. Fish is starting to get bigger, but Fish also goes on hiatus. Um, you know, is that the jam band scene, the improvisational music scene is very open to a vast array of styles of music, whether it's jazz or bluegrass, rock, reggae, world music. So, you know, I sort of said, listen, why don't we start bringing in some different types of music and different, you know, start covering a wider array of things. Um, and I think that was generally the right move. You know, it certainly pissed off some older deadheads that have been around, like, why is this band on a cover, right? I remember when I first took over as officially as editor, the Beastie Boys were on the cover, right? Mm. I, I'm sure people were like, oh my God, what is happening? <laughs> um, you know, I, I put um, the Black Keys with, with most deaf on the cover, wow. you know, at one point. Um, but we were able to do a lot of great work and, and we really were focused on the music, right? We were less about sort of the drama of like people's love lives and, you know, whatnot. I think we were very focused on the music. And so, um, it, yeah, it was wonderful. I mean, I got to, to interview, um, so many artists that I, whose work I really cared about. We got to support, I got to support a number of artists whose work, I valued and thought should reach a wider audience. And that always felt really special to be able to, to do that um, early on and form just a, a ton of great relationships um, and memories and mentors. But listen, being a 20 something or 30 something in New York running a music magazine, I, <laughs> I mean, I, it, it didn't get better, right? It just, it really didn't going to see music four or five times a week getting free tickets to every show, you know, <laughs> it was like my built in sort of social network of like meeting people and doing things. And, you know, everyone loved music and having a good time and hanging out. So it was, um, it was awesome. But yeah, I mean, there were, were plenty of stories over the years of, of interviews that went well, of interviews that went bad drama that <laughs> some of the articles caused that, you know, I had to be responsible for, um, you know, working really hard to get artists in the magazine that, you know, we're like, what is this? I don't like, I don't know your magazine. And, you know, eventually saying, okay, I'll do it. Um, so yeah, it was, it was cool. And listen, it's under great um, leadership and ownership today. Pete still runs it. Two of the gentlemen that were there were my executive editors, Dean Budnick and my greenhouse are now co-editors um, and continuing to lead it. I, I still get it at the house today and look forward to every issue when it comes in. I think Allison Russell's on the new cover, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we love you know, her. We like been, her. She's Canadian. We endorse um, that. She's great. Yeah. I mean, um, there's just been, yeah, there's been a bunch of great covers. So um, it's, it's been great and I love to see it continuing. So you and I were talking not that long ago, um, uh, shooting the shit about some stuff. And you told me about uh, one of my favorite ideas I've heard recently. You have a music club with one friend. Oh yeah. <laughs> Tell me, explain that, explain that to our listeners because I want to do something myself. It just makes me want to do it. But what do you guys do? Tell, tell us how this works. So 
my friend's name is Rob, Rob Potter. Um, Rob and I both lived in Brooklyn. Rob still lives in Brooklyn. I'm in South Florida now. So we would um, pick uh, a musical topic to talk about once a week, roughly. Sometimes every two weeks, sometimes every three weeks, we take some breaks, but it's generally ideally once a week. And we pick a topic and we read about it, we listen to it, we watch documentaries about it. Um, and then Rob and I sit and talk about it for two or three hours. And generally it's a topic <laughs> that we don't necessarily know a whole lot about. Um, you know, I, the first one, and we're all, we can always remember when we started, there was a piece in the New York Times, I think we're almost in our eighth or ninth year of doing this now, um, by John Jeremiah Sullivan about these two old uh, blues women named Elvie and Gishi. And it was a cover story for New York Times Magazine. And it was this meticulously researched piece about these old uh, blues women from the 20s and 30s that were like had recorded 10 songs on Paramount and they were sort of lost, but they were like legendary from amongst record collectors and that's sort of what kicked it off. So oddly enough, tonight we are also doing Music Club and tonight's topic is on <laughs> Nina Simone. Um, mm. So we're, we've taken, obviously I knew who Nina Simone was, but we've taken a particularly deep dive uh, on her work, um, which is which is amazing. Um, the past couple I of saw weeks her been, at, uh, I saw her at Carnegie Hall right before the end. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, it, you know, I'm totally inspired. Like I have a group of friends and we all used to, like we all lived together in the West Village and, you know, like 10, 15 years ago, and we all like, we would share music and everybody was listening to the same thing. So I think I'm going to reach out and start our own little music club. Right. Like once a month. You have so to do a little bit of hang. research on your own. Yeah. It's like a book club, but you do it's research. Brilliant. Yep. Well, that's kind of actually how it started up was that I think my wife had been invited to a book club and right like at the time it was like women would get together and was not for women, but it was generally geared toward women. They would talk about a book and like drink wine. And then when I started talking about, I'm like, well, how is it? She's like, well, I haven't like read the book yet, but I went and I was like, well, what? And then we we're like, well, what do we want to do with guys? And we we're like, let's do, let's do a music club. Um, and so that's what, that's just kind of how it started. So, okay, so the, so so you got another one, which you said you su suggested that um, uh, you ran into some naming problems with Rob because you named them the two, uh, you named them the same thing a uh, oh. an email uh, thing that I want a piece of or I want to subscribe <laughs> to, and it so was a you, quarantine you thing, go, right? It was a quarantine thing. So um, I I. Kind of similar to you, what you were saying, Joe, is right. I, I, as much as I, I love, I love Spotify and technology is great and AI technology is getting better in terms of recommendation algorithms. I still think human beings are the best, right? If you're like, Josh, I found this amazing Brazilian artist and it's from 1976. You've never heard of them. I'd be like, cool. I'm going to go listen to that. Um, and I just, now that I moved down here, I'm not around as many music people, right? I'm not going to see four or five shows where someone can say, hey, you got to check out the time I was listening to. So I thought, well, how can I kind of get that going again? And so I came up with like a email, I don't know if it's technically like a listserv, but like an email list where people would write in about, it didn't have to be new. It could be any album they wanted that Jadis thought was amazing that they loved, that they thought other people should hear. And so I kind of hit my whole email list and then once a week, I'd publish this, or then it became bi-weekly, three artists, basically three albums that um, were recommended by other humans that had their commentary <laughs> on it. And then it had my commentary about them. And then it had a playlist of like three tracks from, from each album. Um, so we're here to was, tell you that you have to start that again. 
It's such a great day. So we're, uh, we're putting you on it, the spot. It was great. I mean, I'm very tempted to do it. I, there's been a couple of times recently where I was like, man, that's a great. Um, there was a band called Little Barry um, whose debut album I absolutely loved. I was like, oh my God. I just, I started listening to it the other day. I was like, more people need to listen to this album. <laughs> and then it happened and I was like, oh, this could be a, this could be an, I called it Odds and Ends. That was the name of my radio show in college. And so, that's what I called the newsletter. I couldn't call it music club. Um, you know, to, to, with all due respect to Rob and I, um, after he kind of wagged his finger at me, I was like, dude, not cool. That, this is our thing. And I was like, you're right. It is. This will be something else. Um, and then what was the other album? There was odds and ends. And then, Oh, I was listening the other day, like a morphine song came on. I was like, man, I wonder if more people like that. More people should know about morphine if they don't. That's a great band. Right. Um, we still listen so, to them all the time, right? All right, let, like, all right. Yeah. Let's let's get to um. Let let's talk about the dead here. Um, <laughs> your um, eyes of the world. Your your uh photography book was um a surprising first, uh, in the sense that no one else had actually done it to that point, um. So if, can you tell us a little about a little bit about the sort of experience of wrangling uh, a book of Grateful Dead photography? But you and I have been talking recently about um, uh, you're looking around that that realm again. You're talking to some people again, possible yeah, projects you know, cooking. Yeah. So surprisingly. You know, I've gotten to work with a lot of the, you know, you say at Relics, while we did cover a lot of other stuff, we also certainly covered a lot of anything Grateful Dead. Um, and so, you know, I, I dawned on me one day, I was like, is this book really not exist of like Grateful Dead photography? <laughs> I looked around, I was like, no, it doesn't. And so I, I contacted sort of like the core five photographers that are most known in that scene. I said, I did this book. Would you guys participate? And they all, and within a day, were like, uh huh, sure. I was like, okay. Um, and then I found someone to back it and then we did it. So, you know, it was probably like six months to, to you know, I tracked down over a hundred photographers and got their work. Um, and then we sort of started putting together. It's, you know, there's very few words in it. It's really about, it's a 12 by 12 inch book. And it was really about reproducing these images at the highest quality possible in a way that for most people, they had never been seen before, right? We've seen a lot of stuff on our computer screens, but that's not how these images were meant to be seen, right? These are, this is film and it was meant to be reproduced on paper, um, you know, at a particular size. So we, it, it mattered that the book be big and that you could really see these images and that words not get in the way. Um, and it was, it was a lot of fun. You know, we did 10,000 copies. Um, they sold out. You can some find some overpriced ones. People are scalping them or reselling them on, <laughs> on Amazon or, or eBay. Um, but it was, it was great. And it, you know, it, it sort of led me back into that relics world a bit and, and, you know, scratch that creative itch, you know, as a result of that book to make a long story short, um, you know, I tracked down a gentleman named Ron Rakow who, um, founded Grateful Dead Records and founded Round Records with Jerry Garcia, um, you know, and, and was with the band starting really in like 66 as part of their their core group and core family, lived at 710 Ashbury. I would, again, to make a very long story short, I'll just say that Ron is a bit of a controversial figure. He's, a, he's been a bit maligned in my opinion. Um, regardless of all that, though, what I will tell you, even if people are, you know, 
um, have not nice things to say about Ron, which I think is maybe a slightly misguided. I mean, Ron is will, is the first to admit that he's full of flaws and whatnot. Um, is that Ron was sort of the band's official photographer for a long time and is sitting on a massive trove of unseen Grateful Dead imagery, right? The largest I've, I've ever seen, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of images, color and black and white from basically 66 to about 71, 72. Um, and it's just, it's tremendous. It's, 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 <laughs> I'm not one for hyperbole, but um, these are some really special photographs um, in that you instantly see the intimacy of these images, right? These they're like Jim Marshall was great and Herbie Green was great and Baron Woolman, all these people. But these were sort of, those were like proper portraits of people. Ron's pictures, while he has plenty of portraits, are of them living, right? Of just being who they were in that moment. And there mm. is just an immediate intimacy you see from these pictures that you don't see anywhere else. They're candid, they're close, like no one else had access like this, full stop, period, because he was part of that family. Um, ultimately, he you know, had to leave that family. He's still very close to people from that world. Um, and so, you know, uh, myself and Jay Blakesburg help administer Ron's archive now, um, and we are working on uh, a project to, you know, help, you know, start getting these images out there to the world. I mean, they're starting to get out there slowly but surely. For those folks that subscribe to, like, The Grateful Dead, like, The Grateful Dead just put out their almanac, which is kind of their online magazine, um, this week or last week, um, and, you know, there were three or four images of Ron's in there that I don't mm -hmm. think had ever been seen before. They weren't noted as like unseen, but I can tell you that they haven't been seen elsewhere before. So um, we are excited mm -hmm. about doing um, a, a book project that will feature Ron's work and bring it to a larger audience and wider audience. For Sound, sure. Sounds a little like uh, Elliot Landy's band photos. So you're talking about that kind of insidery access. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it it's like a little bit, even right. I think Elliot's work was really like confined to like two or three years, maybe, and like right. really kind of just that area of, of kind of upstate New York. Obviously, he he did work down in New York and photographed other musicians and did a great job. This is a much broader hmm. scope of things of of him, you know, going to Canada and sh pictures in New York, and um, you know, it's just a broader swath of of imagery to to look at and, and choose from but um some very cool things right ron was also super close to janice joplin um there's pictures of owsley there's an amazing picture that started to get out there a little bit of neil cassidy um that had never wow. been seen before um you know hanging out at 710 okay. and this, you got like, my attention now yeah <laughs> this cool like red like cowboy shirt with like cowboy boots on like doing his thing so um you know pictures of um um, Owsley, who's sort of the father of, of, of LSD in many ways. Um, you know, so there's just some, some, some cool things. A lot of pictures of Jefferson airplane. Um, so yeah, some, some cool stuff to be sure. All right. So, um, we're, we're running out of time here. I, I, I think we're going to get one we we need some actionable advice here, Josh Barron. So the other, um, Joey here is a huge fan, fan of the national and, <laughs> you know, I'm that. normally here when they go on sale at 10 AM other, 
unlike most people with jobs, I can sit here like finger poised on the keyboard. I'm ready to buy. Uh, when uh, the last couple national shows have gone on sale, uh, my fingers haven't moved fast enough. I don't know what's <laughs> going on. So for the people out here who are looking to get tickets to their favorite artists, what do you tell them? What's their strategy when the, when the thing, when the, when, when you hear that your guy is coming or your woman is coming to town, how do you set yourself up to get that ticket? Um, okay. Um, I sweat, slight digression. Also a very big national fan. I'll fall off a little bit. I was like, someone, I can't believe they released two albums this year. It used to be like, I, I know, it's insane. Like, <laughs> it's like hard to, to keep up. But I remember back when they were like playing like little warehouse gigs in New York and Alligator had just come out and then Boxer came out. Um, and I remember that was a time, right, where I got to interview. I got, got to convince oh, them. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I, I, I interviewed Matt, though he, I thought I was like, I'm going to have drinks with Matt Berninger at work. And I like, <laughs> it's going to be great. But he was like very chill and quiet. We went to this, like, I'm sure you guys, did you guys ever go to Jimmy's Corner um, in Midtown, the old yeah. boxing bar? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it was kind of a place for journalists after Siberia died. So I like, yeah. we sat there and like had some drinks and that's where I did the interview. But um, it also turns out that um, the drummer of the national and the rest of the national guys are also very big deadheads. You probably know from their um, production of day of the dead um, mm-hmm. project. Yep. Anyway, Which I think was recorded uh, just down the street from us here. Yeah. There. Yeah. I think there was a lot of it was, was done up there in, in upstate for sure. Under in Hurley. In fact. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I mean, what I'm going to tell you isn't anything like revolutionary or particularly new, right? I would say that make sure you sign up to, you know, for your artist email list, right? Sometimes there mm-hmm. may be pre-sales. Sometimes they might tell you things. A lot of times you might forget about when a, something goes on sale, whatnot. So sign up for <laughs> your artist email list. Um, take advantage of your credit card pre-sales, right? Sounds a little bougie, but whether it's City or Amex, that can definitely be helpful. Um, sometimes there are some other venue pre-sales, whatnot. Sometimes it gets a little ridiculous how many pre-sales there are before the general sale, but you know, it gives you an opportunity at least to try and, um, get a shot. Um, and then when the day of comes, you know, have everything ready make sure your accounts are set up, right? If you've never, if bizarrely, if you never purchased tickets from Ticketmaster or something, Make sure you have a Ticketmaster <laughs> account. Make sure you know your password. Like, make sure you just like have it ready to go, and you're kind of dialed in. Oh my god! I just people... remembered. I just remembered f- trying to phone in for tickets. Um. <laughs> well, the, the trick there was right is that you would call at like nine forty five, <laughs> talk to them about various other tickets, and then at like ten o'clock, be like, you know what? Actually, I'd really be interested in the national tickets for those people. <laughs> And then they would, you know, hopefully hook you up with some tickets. Um, and, and you know, try as, you know, some people say, like, look at the atomic clock and it's synced to the atomic clock. And that's when you, like, hit, the, you know. But, I mean, listen, try to go for pairs of tickets, right? A lot of times they're going to do best available versus, like, selecting. So so try a limited quantity of tickets. Obviously, if you do four, that's going to be tougher than three or certainly two. An odd number of tickets is going to be harder to cart than an even number. So two is probably your best bet. Most likely no one wants to go to a show by themselves, but sometimes they do. I sat next to a girl at a Taylor Swift show that was just crying by herself um, <laughs> the entire show. Um, you know, but um, 
And then if you don't get your tickets, which may happen, which could be a bummer, never, ever go to the secondary market and buy your tickets like that day or the next day, right? That right. is generally when the tickets are going to be at their highest price, right? Show just sold out. You really want them. They're all suddenly over here. How do they get to the secondary market so fast? Oh, this is outrageous, but I want to take it. Just don't do it. Do not buy tickets. <laughs> Wait, because um, most likely that event is probably three to six months away. You know, most likely four to six months, maybe even longer, right? Taylor is playing here a year from now in October. So wait and sort of wait until like maybe it's several months out. Not right before, but most likely right before. Just And then take a look at tickets. Be like, okay, like, is this better, right? They're most likely going to come down. And then, you know, you can also look as the show, you know, if you don't buy, then you can kind of wait and hedge your bets as things get closer to the show. You might get lucky, right? There have been some articles around this Travis Scott tour where the, the secondary market, you know, took a way too large of a position. And so despite it being sold out on Ticketmaster, there's actually very cheap seats available on secondary. That was certainly true, best I could tell from certain markets. So um, All right. I'm not wow. sure, but I would just say don't buy tickets right away. Like just take <laughs> okay. a pause. Be like, oh, this was really disappointing. Go drink some water, have something stronger if you need, <laughs> wait several months, and then go look to buy your tickets again. That would be my advice. And then also sometimes um, artists and promoters will, not, will also release tickets, right? They have these, they have holds, right? They'll generally hold back anywhere, never more than 10%, but they'll hold back a percentage of tickets for radio, for, for whatnot, right? And ultimately, if not all those tickets are needed or bought, um, you know, they will um, release them. I would also say, you know, and this I'll probably get beat up for saying this, there are generally like not comp tickets left, right? They're sometimes for press, there's still comp tickets. But if you want to go to a show, it's generally like always a will buy situation, right? Can I get a will buy? Mm -hmm. So if you have friends in high places that do different things out there, you can ask your friends for, hey, can you give me a will buy? <laughs> That's a great point. Okay. I actually sort of learned that by osmosis in the last decade where I've said, can you get me tickets? I'm not asking for free. I'm just asking for tickets. And right. you're totally correct. It works more often. Like it works on a far way higher hit ratio than do you have some tickets that you can give me? <laughs> Josh Barron, great to talk to you. Uh, um, congratulations on making your tickle, uh, the subject of your entire life's work, whether it's the uh, well, books or the magazines, this, this flew by, I apologize for my, my tardiness. <laughs> um, but this was a lot of fun. You made me sound, um, more <laughs> successful than I felt like I had been. So thank you for that. Um, but, um, I'm truly tickled to, to be on the show and thank you for finding me worthy to be on it. And. And Joey, nice to meet you as well. Nice. To All right, you. man. Thanks, Thanks again. Josh. All right. Bye. Talk to you guys soon. Cheers. Bye. All right. So we have the scoop. So Tickets. we have the scoop. So uh, <laughs> Josh Barron, uh, I ran into him and his wife at um, uh, our friend, uh, our friends, Adam and Steph Masri, their son, Lennox's bar mitzvah. <laughs> and, um, so, uh, like he was saying, you know, you'd rather get a music recommendation from a friend. Yeah. Um, 
he and I were sitting there talking over to the breakfast table at a brunch. And I was like, oh, my God, wait, you need to be on the show. So he's right. The more we digitalize, the more we feel a weird kind of connection online. But the real connections that you make are in person. Thank you, Josh Barron, for connecting in person. So do, do, do we, do we know, yeah. but do we know how to get Taylor Swift, Taylor Swift tickets yet? Or do we, <laughs> no, or like, no, we didn't, uh, didn't no. we didn't uh, quite get that. That's still, well, wait, wait a while. I think wait. Is the general, okay, we're going to wait. wait. That's the plan. We don't have them yet. We're going to wait. Maybe we will have them soon. Yeah. Uh, okay. I've got one for you. I was reading this book, uh, uh, called the teachings of Lord Capilla. That's a great book. I've heard a lot of it. Since you've been um, reading it, it's about Krishna consciousness, which is essentially uh, Krishna, as uh, some listeners will know, is uh, one of the um, Vedantic sort of uber gods. Um, the one he is uh, uh, one of the main characters in the Bhagavad Gita. He's talking to Arjuna, but essentially, it's all the higher self and the lower self. Uh, but um, so there's Sri Krishna. That's uh, where you get Hare Krishna from. Uh, but I was reading it today, and they said there's another name for Krishna, and it was Utama Shloka. Um, Utama Shloka. Utama Shloka. So Shloka is a Sanskrit word for like verse or phrases or something. Basically, the stuff you're saying or reading, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Utama uh means anything from above the top the best so utama shloka means that um those are basically the best words so the verses for the best the best, the best words for him the best selected words so if you are talking about um the supreme Krishna, sort of the god of all gods, the guru, mm-hmm. uh, you are obviously using the best selected words. Right. Okay. So like, like a lot of things in Sanskrit, it's, it's, it's a classic. I've got one for you. It's in the word. So another name for Krishna is the best words. So if you're <laughs> talking about God, you must be using the best words. You can't use any words you choose. You worship him with the best selected words, which are Utama Shloka. That's pretty good. What's uh, the best husband? What would do? What would Utama 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 Duff? Duff. Utama Utama Duff. Duff. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So, um, top husband. to, To close this out, so there's different ways you can think about sort of what your existence is, right? Right. If you think of yourself as a material, physical body, you draw a certain line around yourself and you say, this is me. But you could also think of yourself as a as a part of an energetic interchange. Right. In which case uh, this line isn't as um, relevant as the the uh, modes of interchange. Mm -hmm. Right. And I read this thing. It might be the last quote from this book for a while because I finally finished it. Swami Abedananda's book, Bhagavad Gita, The Divine Message. He had this great passage where he's 
describing what we are in a way that, you know, you never really think of. The whole universe is subject to change, and our bodies are nothing but eddies in the oceans of matter. The particles of matter are coming in and going out of the body. Every time we eat or drink and add so much to the system, or when we throw it out, we throw out our imperfections and unnecessary particles. So as long as we live, we are doing this, and it means a constant change. A, you are change. B, your body isn't the standalone thing you think it is. It is an eddy in the ocean of matter, <laughs> right? Things coming in, things going out. It's all movement. And the, you know, as far as I can tell from what the Vedantists advise, uh, you want to think of yourself as part of the whole, not as a separate mm. thing, as part of the whole. And, you know, this is one way of it, which is to think of yourself as an eddy in the ocean of matter. That's great. That's great. That's a Betty said something like that. When I remember when I was young about how she's like, so what part of you doesn't change? She's like, every cell in your body is different from the time from now and till the time you were a kid. Like there's nothing about you that's actually the same, like not the same cells, not the same anything. So, right. but you're still you. So who are you? So, right. Right. That's the question. <laughs> you are Utama Shloka. No, that's Krishna. <laughs> Uh, but you're part and parcel of him anyway. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with you in a week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to How to Tickle Yourself with your host, Duff McDonald, and me, Joey of Rockledge. You can help us by liking, subscribing, and sharing this podcast with others. You can talk to us and see what else is happening on Instagram and Facebook at How to Tickle Yourself. This program was recorded in Studio B of the historic Rockledge Recording Studio. Right Here, Right Now, our original 16-part theme music was written and recorded by the legendary Paul Reddick and Kyle Ferguson of The Sidemen, with Steve Mariner on bass and drums and in the mixing room. This podcast is produced and distributed by Storic Media. Our editor is Oscar Desiderio. Our producers are Kristen Verbitsky and Chuck Labella. For more information, visit storicmedia.com. That's S-T-O-R-I-C-media.com. 